Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Irish Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Bridget English, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, I'm talking to Joseph Tracy, co-author, along with Declan Ward and John Cahill, of Safety as We Watch, Anesthesia in Ireland, 1947 to 1998, which describes the individual innovators, institutions, and networks which led to the development of anesthesia in Ireland. The book traces the fascinating development of anesthesia from an apprentice-based craft to a highly technical medical specialty. Welcome, Joe. Um, First, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about yourself and how you came to this project. Uh, Thanks very much, Bridget, for inviting me to speak to that. I have to correct you immediately. It's 1847 to 1998, not 1947 to 1998. You're right. Yeah. I'm Irish and I live here in Dublin. I'm a graduate of University College Dublin, graduated in medicine from there in 1974. And I trained in anesthesia initially in Dublin and then in uh, McGill in Montreal and then finished off in... uh, Uh, the Beth Israel, one of the Harvard hospitals in Boston before I returned to Ireland to take up a consultant post. I worked as a consultant at Beaumont Hospital, which is one of the larger hospitals in Dublin. And uh, I worked there for over 30 years. And I also worked as in a parallel universe as director of the National Poisons Information Center for for Ireland. And I retired from uh, medical practice in 2010. So I'm we had to find something to do. The other authors, uh, first, the lead author is really Declan Ward. And I met Declan yesterday to talk about this. And he said he had a very unusual interaction with the University of Illinois. On Good Friday in 1973, which is pretty well 50 years ago, he um, told his mother he was going to play a soccer match against the University of Illinois here in Dublin. And she said, no good will come of that. You're going out to play on Good Friday. And she was right. He suffered a severe head injury. Doesn't remember anything about the second half of the match. It was carted off with a fractured skull thanks to a boot from somebody from Illinois. However, he recovered fully, as you can see from the book, and um, trained in anesthesia and surgery first and then anesthesia and in Dublin. And then he did, like myself, he traveled to Toronto Sick Children's and came back as a pediatric anesthetist to uh, one of the pediatric hospitals, which is called Temple Street on the north side of Dublin. The third author is John Cahill, and he trained initially in the UK and then came back to Ireland. And he worked in Cork down in the south of the country in the Mercy Hospital there until he retired as well. So the three of us are retirees. How we came to the project in 2016, the then president of the College of Anesthetists of Ireland, uh, Professor Carson approached the three of us and said, would we be willing to write a history of anesthesia and of, and of the faculty of anesthesia of RCSI and of anesthesia in Ireland? We, to be honest, we were all a little bit reluctant because it seemed to be a very broad 
palate. Um, and then we did agree, though in retrospect, I think we were right to be reluctant because the whole project took over six years from inception to publication. So uh, that's that's how we, we got into this. Right. Um, thank, yeah, that's, that's really interesting, uh, especially since the poor Declan um, was wounded so badly in the soccer match against University of Illinois. But I'm very glad to hear he recovered anyway. Um, <laughs> but the, so this is the, the first I was really interested to discover because I've um, read and researched some books about um, anesthesia um, in, in the U.S. Um, but I, I was interested to hear that this is the first published history of anesthesia, um, like about anesthesia in Ireland. So can you speak a little bit about, I know you said it took six years to publish this, but about the challenges and maybe some of the pleasures or joys of, of writing this kind of book. Well, firstly, as you state, this is the first published history of anesthesia in Ireland. Now, as a sort of a, a prologue, about 2014, a Professor Wilkinson, who is a well-known English medical historian specializing in anesthesia came to Dublin and he gave a talk, a very comprehensive talk at the Royal Irish Academy of Medicine here in Dublin on the history of anesthesia in Ireland. And then he challenged us in the audience, particularly Declan and myself, uh, with the very point that nothing, not a single article had been published as far as he knew in any of the anesthesia journals on, on this very subject. So it had got us started thinking about it anyway at that point before Professor Carson came along and, and actually said that they, they would support us in doing this. So we started with a complete clean slate. We didn't have to you know, see what was written already because there was nothing written already. The College of Anesthetists, as it was then, uh, left it completely up to us as to what we were going to include and what we were going to exclude. They didn't say we had to go from here to there or anything like that. Um, as soon as the word, of course, got out that somebody was writing a history of anesthesia, we started getting a lot of advice from all quarters as to who should be in this book. And we realized that this could be a, a bit of a, a slippery slope. You know, who do you put in and who do you leave out? Because obviously it could be an endless tale. So for this reason, we decided we'd have a cutoff date. Now, one of the editors told me to have as many dead people in the book as possible because that's, uh, from the point of view of being sued, it's very safe, but we, we couldn't do that. So we set the cutoff date as the foundation date of the College of, An of Anesthetists, which is now called the College of Anesthesiologists. So that set the cutoff date as 1998, which was the year of when we stopped being a faculty of anesthetists of the Royal College of Surgeons and became an independent college. It also gave us about 20 years of retrospection. So we weren't looking at uh, dates that were too recent because they're not, you can't really look at them impartially if dates are too close. Or the current, we found that would not be good for history. The start date was quite obvious. It was going to be January of 1847, which was the date of the first anesthetic uh, given in Ireland. So that gave us a, a nice span of about 150 years to cover. Um, Dr. Ward wrote a, wrote a preliminary chapter, though, chapter one, which really wants to lay out what was happening on the world stage before the first anesthetic came here. And he dealt with a number of the important characters like Wells and Morton so that we, we had the background. And then chapter two uh, is about the, the first anesthetic here. 
as the book evolved, you know, we we began to realize, you know, there's regional anesthesia, there's general anesthesia, there's critical care, and there's so many different aspects. So we were adamant that we were not going to try and do a textbook because, I mean, it's just an enormous task. And we would be writing about that, you know, that would mean writing about the development of different drugs, different inhalation agents, different techniques. And that's not what we wanted to do. We wanted to describe the people, the personages that were involved in anesthesia growing as a specialty, and then also the institutions. So we kept away from, as much as we could, we had to have technical aspects in it as well. But we we tried to keep away from all of that. And most of these drugs were invented elsewhere anywhere, so they weren't really part of our remit. So we decided to concentrate on the people and the institutions. It soon became obvious that the developments in the 19th century would be covered by Dr. Declan Ward because he has an, an expertise in older history and he knew his way around the archives better than any of us. And John Cahill and myself would deal with the various institutions, the societies, the faculties, the exams, and so on. I had been very involved in the faculty and I knew I had actually met every single one of the deans in my lifetime. So I felt this was an area I could write about with honesty because I knew all of the personalities or I had met them maybe in an exam and they'd failed me, but I'd met every one of them face to face. So we now had reached a point where there were really two parts of the book. There was the early history from the 19th century and then there was the 20th century. We'd also decided that we'd write biographies uh, of key people as we saw them. Now, there was going to be, obviously, there was going to be the deans, and then there was going to be the professors, and then we picked out various historical people that uh, we felt were should be included. And this, in the end, became the third part of the book. We, we really did feel that part of our task, apart from writing the book, was to provide archival material to have some of these biographies written down for next generations, for want of another word. We divided these biographies between us, depending on who knew what characters or, you know, people who are interested in in certain characters. For the people who are still alive, we we used everything. We used face-to-face meetings. We used um, written information received from them, like CVs and um, and uh, also telephone calls if they were in another part of the country. The parts I really enjoyed were, for instance, writing the chapter on the first anesthesia, but really on how the information came from Boston over to England and then from England over to Ireland. But, um, of course, we ran into one, well, the two major problems that we ran into. The first one was uh, getting high high quality images that we could use in the book um, with adequate number of pixels and also in getting copyright permission. There were some images that we couldn't use because we either it was too difficult to get copyright or we couldn't identify who actually owned the copyright or else if it was some of the larger publishing houses, the amount of paperwork involved was just so complex that we sort of threw a towel in at it. And um, some of them were were wanting to charge so much money that we said, oh, we'll get a different image from somewhere else. Then, of course, the the one that was looming on the horizon or nobody saw it coming was COVID. So COVID came at the point where we we had 
we had a lot of the writing done, but we hadn't at all done. But it was at the point where we had copy editors and we wanted to go back and check on references and things like that. So the major archives that we used, that was the archives of the uh, Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, the archives of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland, the National Library and various other ones. Like They were all closed. They were closed for the duration of COVID. And so we had to wait till they opened. In another case, like the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland, which is in Belfast, it was closed initially. But when it opened, we couldn't go there because the uh, restrictions were so severe. I, you know, I lived in Dublin, but I wasn't allowed to travel more than five kilometers. So I wasn't allowed to travel north for a number of months uh, before I could get up there. So that delayed things as well. So all of these slowed down the final part of the book. So um, there's a fair few, there was quite a few challenges, as you can see, thrown in there. Right, and they're familiar challenges. They sound like to a lot of academic writing. I know that so many, so much archival material was cut off during the COVID pandemic, as well as the struggle with images is familiar to me as well, um, because of the the high cost of them often. Um, and it's interesting the way you also chose to divide the book um, between the the first half is roughly the um, development in the the 19th century and then uh, the ways it was managed in the 20th. Uh-huh. Um, well, uh, you actually asked about the, the the networks of information and things like that. Um, right. So yeah, yeah, the 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 especially since I think that you've highlighted you know the or the beginning of the book at least highlights how uh chemical chlor- compounds like chloroform, like chloroform and ether, and ether yeah. right and they, how they were used but i was interested in in the, the maybe the, the networks between say england scotland and ireland and and how maybe information was circulated and also how the developments might have been different in in different places well yeah it's a good question and um See, the Act of Union took place in 1801, and it meant that from then on, Ireland had no parliament. So the members of parliament in Ireland now had to travel to Westminster. But this actually led to very good connections between Dublin and London in particular, because there was a good ferry service from Dublin over to Hollyhead in Wales. And then the railway lines were built between Hollyhead and Westminster. So MPs could get to Westminster in under 24 hours. So, I mean, if we go right back to the chapter chapter two, which is the beginning of the story in Ireland, the, the medical networks were really, as today to an extent, well, now we have computers, but were the journals. So the um, information about, um, uh, about the ether anesthesia in Boston and then the first use of it in England, all of this came together very tightly as uh, soon as... Um, Listen, heard about uh, the Boston experiment. He went and he did an amputation, and he did that uh, in um, at the end of the year. But it was written up by, in the British, the um, British and Foreign Medical Review, which was sort of the international journal at the time. Now that it was written up in the January edition of that journal, but the January edition arrived in Dublin around Christmas. So the surgeon, John MacDonald, actually saw the article about Morton's and uh, Morton's uh, anesthetic and about Liston's uh, surgery. He saw it in December. 
which was very quick. Um, it was all within, the slow part was actually coming from Boston to Dublin. And the only reason that was slow was because um, the surgeon who wrote the article wanted to see a whole lot of cases before he was willing to endorse it and write an article. And then that was that was published in, in one of the Boston papers. And then that was sent to England um, by steamship. But once he wrote it, it, it got here very quickly within a couple of weeks. And then from London to here, it was only a couple of two weeks, I think for the information to travel. So um, John McDonald actually gave the first anesthetic on the 1st of January, based on the information he got from the January edition of the British and Foreign Medical Review. So that was pretty good communication. Now, something similar happened then as regards chloroform. Simpson um, used chloroform at the beginning of November in Edinburgh. And he wrote a pamphlet on how to use it. And he was also known to be in touch with a lot of obstetricians in Dublin by, by post. And so as a result of that, the first chloroform anesthetic was given in Dublin by the end of November. So he, he did it at the beginning of November. By the end of the November, they were using chloroform in Dublin. Um, immediately, though, about in January of that year, the first death occurred under chloroform anesthesia. And this triggered a lot of anxiety and it triggered a lot of um, different groups looking at the, the risks involved in using ether and the risks involved in using chloroform. And you see that even right back to um, the very first cases in the States. They wanted to see a couple of cases before they started using this chemical to see if it was safe for their patients. And for instance, in um, October of 1861, there was a report from Boston. It was called the Report of a Committee of the Boston Society of Medical Improvement on the Inherent Dangers of the Vapors of Sulfuric Ether. So they, they were always very concerned about the safety of these, these agents. Now, it's interesting because the northeastern states, I presume the New England states is what they meant, but the northeastern states continue to use ether. And that's, that was the first drug used in, in the one used in Boston was ether. So they, they were loyal to the ether. But uh, in Britain and Ireland, it was mainly chloroform. But chloroform was easier to use. But as it turned out, it was an awful lot more dangerous. And um, eventually people moved away from it or they started using a combination of, of these things. So word did spread around the, the medical community at a, and at an amazing rate, really, considering there was no telephone calls or anything like that. So um, I thought it was a good question from you about um, about that. Yeah, because it's, um, it's especially interesting that, um, like, as you say, that ether was used more in North America and chloroform was used more in Ireland. Um, and then you have so, so much interesting information as well about the, the organizations and academic developments that kind of happened in correlation with the development of anesthesia. So particularly, I think, Chapter 13, uh, you describe the the organizations and academic developments in the 20th century uh, that you mentioned earlier with the, the first Society of Anesthetists in London in 1893. And their objectives, you say, were to foster friendly relations between its members through debates, discussions, and scientific papers. Do you think that these objectives change over the course of the 20th century, or do you think that they largely adhere to them? Or how do you see that um, objectives shifting or maybe those debates, how much do they become more relevant um, or hit on topics that are maybe more 
political than they were before. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a very good point you raise because the Society of Anesthetists, as you say, was really just to bring together the few practitioners that they were because of the number of... Even though anesthesia appeared in, in the mid-1800s, the number of operations that were done under anesthesia didn't increase an awful lot. So the number of people who were giving anesthetics remained pretty small. So the Society of Anesthetists was a good idea to bring them together to discuss things. But they they were then absorbed by into what they call the section of anesthetics of the Royal Society of Medicine in 1908. And this was a bigger body and uh, a number, nearly all the different specialties had sections within the Royal Society of Medicine. And this was the big forum back then at the, at the beginning of the, the, the uh, 20th century. However, the Royal Society of Medicine was strictly for, and still is to this day, strictly for um, uh, scientific presenting of papers, discussions, and things like that on the actual technical aspects of um, of, of their subjects. The new anaesthetists realized that they had to negotiate on working conditions and pay because they were being very poorly paid, and a lot of the times they weren't being paid at all, uh, except what the surgeons would give them. So they... And they weren't allowed to use the Royal Society of Medicine as a as a, a trade union, for want of a better word. So in 1932, Featherstone decided to set up a separate body, which he called the Association of Anesthetists. And he included Ireland in it. It was the Association of Anesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland. Because um, they well, it, there was a lot of Irish anesthetists working over there and vice versa. So this was a big step towards being recognized as a as a specialty in their own right. Now, uh, the, the first thing they realized, well, they started negotiating on their pay and conditions of work, firstly, because a lot of them are just hired for two hours in the morning, maybe two days a week and things like that. And the rest of, and the rest of the time they had to work as general family practitioners to make a living. Uh, there was uh, one member of Ivan McGill, who was a, an Irish anesthetist who worked all his career in England, um, he was very anxious that the Association of Anesthetists would push towards proper training and proper qualifications for anesthetists. And as a result of this, they approached the Royal Colleges in England uh, for the, to set up an exam. So in um, 1935, they held the first diploma in anesthesia. And it was, it was called a conjoint diploma because it was a uh, conjoint between the Royal College of Physicians and the Royal College of Surgeons in England. So this finally gave anesthetists some sort of um, recognition as being a specialty, as, as having some skills at, and having exams. A uh, similar exam took place then following the example of, and of the, the um, English. Uh, we set up a diploma here in 1942. And again, that was a conjoint diploma of the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. They all had the royal um, titles. The next step, though, was the National Health Service in the UK um, came into being, I think it was 1948. And they would only pay you as a specialist if you had a higher qualification. But they didn't recognize the diploma in anesthetics as a higher qualification. And by now, the uh, English had set up their own college. They, they, well, not their own college. They had set up the Faculty of Anesthetists of the Royal College of Surgeons in England. So they then 
uh, started a fellowship examination, a fellowship at the faculty of, of Anesthes Royal College of Surgeons in England. And that was recognized by the NHS as a specialty examination. And as a result, anesthetists could now be paid as consultants within the NHS. Um, in Ireland, we had, um, again, a bit like the Royal Society of Medicine, we had the Royal, Royal Academy of Medicine in Ireland, which was actually 20 years older than the Royal Society of Medicine. And the, the section of anaesthetics in that didn't start until 1946, and that was to commemorate 100 years since Morton's first anaesthetic. And then a few years later, in uh, 1959-1960, the Royal College of Surgeons started up the Faculty of Anesthetists Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. And uh, they started, the first task that that uh, group had was to set up their specialty exam. So then they had their fellowship. And on a parallel track, the academic, the academic departments, again, this is, is important for recognition with your peers. The first academic department of anesthesia actually uh, was in Wisconsin. And it, it uh, appointed the first professor of anesthesia was Ralph Milton Waters. And he was appointed as early as 1927. And again, he had the same message. He wanted to give training to undergraduates. He wanted to give training to postgraduates in anesthesia and um, to, again, provide safe anesthesia because you had people who were properly trained, who knew what they were doing, who knew their physiology, their pharmacology. So that was the first one in the world was in Wisconsin in 1927. Over on this side of the Atlantic, um, Robert Reynolds McIntosh, who was actually a New Zealander, was appointed to Oxford for the first professorship in anesthesia in Europe, was in Oxford, and that was in 1937. And they rapidly expanded in the UK. They Over the next few years, they had uh, more and more academic departments uh, appearing around in Liverpool and London and places like that. It was, took a while for the same, same thing to happen here. The first academic department in Ireland was set up in Queen's University in Belfast in 1964 with the appointment of uh, John Dundee, who, who was one of the leading lights in, in anesthesia. And then the following year, the first uh, professor was appointed down here in, in Southern Ireland in 1965 when Tommy Gilmartin was appointed as the um, Professor of Anesthetics in uh, in Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland. So that's how this that's how the academic departments and that's how those that society changed, as you say, from starting off just to foster friendly relations, but it was really to bring people together. And of course, once you get together, you you begin to get uh, more powerful, or you begin to see what problems the other peoples are having and and that's how it evolved so started with the society and ended up with the colleges um so um which is a little different from the states because i don't think there's the diplo there's the american board of anesthesiology but uh, i don't think either in canada or the states that they have actual college of anesthesiologists you know so there that's how that's developed yeah and you also discuss um the Northern Ireland Anesthetics Group of the British Medical Association, which is was also known as the Northern Ireland Society of Anesthetics in Chapter 15. And again, you trace this kind of trajectory in the discussions that are taking place at these meetings um, from things like epidural anesthesia during labor to anesthesia for the pair of cleft palate and infants and hypoxia and its management in aircraft. So the variety of topics, I think, gives 
at least readers who don't know much about um, anesthesia, the, the, the complexity of administering anesthesia for a variety of different kinds of ailments. So I'm just interested from a specialist like you, what, what do these topics indicate about how anesthesia was developed or like how it was used? Um, like, do, do you see from this trajectory ways that anesthesia um, became used for, for things people hadn't maybe considered when it was first um, yeah, I thought that was interesting that you picked up on that because uh, <laughs> that getting up to that uh, Northern Ireland uh, Public Records Office to find all that information was uh, quite hazardous and tricky, but I was delighted I did it because I know a lot of the of the Northern Ireland and East of this. But um, I know uh, I put in all the topics that they, t- they talked about at their meetings that I could find out about because, as you've pointed out, it shows the evolution of the specialty, how it's doing more and more and more from, you know, as you say, the epidural anesthesia in labor, the difficulties of doing cleft palates in infants. And if you if um, you look at the chapters on the faculty of anesthesis, two chapters on that, you can see from the annual congresses the way uh, – what topics became more and more topical as the years evolved from the 60s through to through to the 90s. There were huge changes, obviously, occurred in anesthesia in the 20th century. And a number of those were triggered by the world wars. They triggered a lot of changes, as you know, in medicine throughout. For instance, um, Sir Ivan McGill, again, uh, this anesthetist I talked to about, who was originally from County Down, he, after the First World War, he had served, you know, he served in France during the First World War. After the First World War, they opened this hospital in the south of England called St. Mary's and Sidcup, I think, in Kent. And it was for treating facial injuries, for all the horrific facial injuries that the soldiers in the First World War had suffered from gas attacks and from shell attacks. So a lot of the operations were taking place in the face. And at that point, you administered an anesthetic by holding a mask over the face. So this was obviously not ideal when the surgeon's trying to operate in the face and you're holding a mask over the face. So Sir Ivan McGill started to put a rubber tube. The story about it is that he was he's wondering, how am I going to get the anesthetic down into the lungs and not have a mask in the face? And he saw they had a, a kettle in the tea room and it was connected to a gas cylinder, a little gas ring. And he supposedly cut some of the tubing that ran from the gas cylinder to the gas ring and um, put that down the nose and insufflated the anesthetic down the nose. And then he realized if he um, gingerly manipulated this tube, he could actually get it between the vocal cords. So he basically developed endotracheal intubation, which we're we're all aware of, even if you've never been in hospital, you've seen every movie going when they put down tubes. So he was able to put these tubes down and now the surgeons could work away without interference from the anesthetist. And he was able to give the anesthetic and oxygen to the patient down the tube. So that was one huge development. And of course, that led later to the ability to ventilate patients. Another one that took place um, sort of inadvertently, well, it's not inadvertently, after Pearl Harbor, there was thousands of casualties, as you know. And um, they realized that a lot of these young, fit, healthy sailors who had been tra- suffered trauma and were being operated on um, after the uh, attack on Pearl Harbor died under anesthesia. And the reason they died was that they were hypovolemic and they, they had low blood pressure and they, they died once they got the anesthetic. 
the American army, and I presume the American population in general, realized they had a huge shortage of trained anesthesiologists. So they actually turned around and said, we're going to have to train a whole lot more anesthesiologists. And again, that lifted the specialty up. But suddenly people realized this is a very important specialty. Another significant step was the polio epidemic in the, I think, late 40s, early 50s. And um, when that the, the first center that really dealt with that was in, in Copenhagen, and they started to ventilate these patients because they realized that um, if they could ventilate them for so many days, this was with iron lungs in those days, uh, that they would recover from the polio and survive. So here you have anesthetists ventilating these patients. They were doing it by hand at first, using a rubber bag and bagging them and taking them turns to do it for 24 hours a day. Um, so this was really the start of critical care or intensive care. And again, it was the anesthesiologists who were who were doing it. Certainly here, you know, in, in Ireland, all 90% of intensivists are anesthesiologists by training, first of all. So we had the critic, first critical care units opening up in Denmark, in Copenhagen. In Ireland, we had our first ones in both Belfast and Dublin opened in the 1960s. So now you find you have anesthetists who are working in intensive care. Then we have people like um, Ron Melzack, whom I worked with in Montreal, who came up with the gate theory of pain. So you, you had the start of, this is back in the 80s, uh, you have the start of the pain clinics. And um, so now you have pain medicine. So uh, as a result now, our, our, um, our College of Anesthesiologists has two faculties. We have the Faculty of Pain Medicine and we have the Joint Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine as well as just being the College of Anesthesiologists. So it shows how, how far the, um, we've infiltrated the, the modern medicine. Um, right, yeah. It's so uh, fascinating to think about how, like even just reading your book about how anesthesia developed, it's really interesting to, to think about how we now have so many more it's so advanced in terms of how we manage pain. Um, but you, um, to go back for a second to um, the meetings themselves, uh, you you mentioned in Chapter 15 at the meeting of the Northern Ireland Society of Anesthetists in uh, 1977, I think, that they had the, an extraordinary meeting uh, to discuss the implications of the way that merit awards were allocated. Um, and there was a note in the in that chapter that said that the the that noted that the lack of merit recognition had like really negative effect on the morale of um, anesthetists, so, like local ones. So, can you say a little bit more about why this meeting is of particular significance? Yeah, I'm uh, surprised you spotted that uh, little niche in there. Um, it really only applied to Northern Ireland. This doesn't apply in in the rest of Ireland because it was a feature of the National Health Service. So in the National Health Service, they had these, um, the committee, a merit awards committee, and each year they would produce a, a couple of names of doctors whom they felt uh, should have a merit award. Now, the merit award meant you got paid more money, and there was various levels of merit award, and it also meant your pension would be bigger. And... Um, and this was in the NHS, so we're not talking only about Northern Ireland here. We never had merit awards in uh, the rest of Ireland. Everybody was on a level playing field, whether they were a neurosurgeon or an anaesthetist. Everybody got the same pay. Um, so what they, they they pointed out that none of the anaesthetists were getting merit awards, 
and um, it was sort of a, a bit of a slap in the face, you know, why it was like, there, I, I presume they felt it was like we we're a second class citizen and it really rankled. And the reason 1977, 1977 was at the peak of the troubles in Northern Ireland. This was when the bombing campaigns were going on. There was shootings. So these anaesthetists would have been dealing with severe major trauma. You know, every couple of nights they'd be in there working all night on trauma and gunshot wounds and everything. And they could easily just get in a boat and go over to England or Scotland, get the same pay, but not have all this hassle. So they were quite aggrieved and they felt that they were losing talent. You're losing people because... They weren't being recognised for it. Um, that's all I can make out of it. I mean, it's there's. I have no details saying that all of that happened, but that would be my interpretation of it. You know. Yeah, because it was interesting. Like I, I kept thinking about the troubles and how the dates, you know, were significant. And I think there's a brief mention of the troubles, but nothing, nothing really addressing the, the kinds of things that I'm sure the anesthetists, the anesthetists were dealing with. Um, you also mentioned that in in may of 1959 the faculty of anesthesia anesthetists in america we spell it differently um oh yeah the, you yeah. don't use the ae you see right yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you mentioned that the anesthetists would be the first ones uh, the first would be the the faculty would be the first one created by the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland, but then I was interested because there's mention of this recommendation that the South African Society of Anesthetists could send in names for consideration, and I wasn't really I wasn't clear, but you didn't really there was no explanation as to why that that was um, why that could happen. So I was wondering what your theory is. Why was this suggested? I don't. You really did read this book. Um, uh, <laughs> It has been, it, it really intrigued me, and I've asked several people in the Royal College of Surgeons, but of course none of them are around at this time, um, as to why they asked the, said that uh, members of the South African Society should be allowed to become, um, uh, what do they call them, uh, adiundum fellows of the faculty. In other words, to be granted a fellowship without having to sit an exam. That was basically what it was, and that would mean they could come here. They the only explanation or the only possible explanation, and I don't know if this is it, and I don't think if anybody can tell me, the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland is different from the Royal College of Surgeons in England or in Glasgow or in Edinburgh. There are three others in that it has an undergraduate medical school. And it's a lot of its graduates, certainly back in those days, over 50% of its graduates would have been from abroad, from Asia and also from South Africa. So I can only conjecture that they were um, looking after their own graduates. Now, there had been a lot of strong links anyway with South Africa, and there's been a lot of to and froing of anesthetists from here to South Africa and South Africa to here. We're on the same time zone, you see, which helps a lot. Um, but nobody could actually give me the reason why they wanted so many. So that I can't. I did tot it up, but there were a number of South African anesthetists then got, um, we call them honorary fellowships. In other words, they were granted a fellowship without examination. This happened in the first couple of years where um, 
where they granted fellowships to normally senior nieces who'd been working in the system for years and who weren't going to turn around and start sitting in the exam now. So they were in the first two or three years, there was lists of people who were going to get fellowships uh, because of their status in society or their work with education or whatever. So this was what uh, that was all about. But yes, it's an interesting thing to pick out. And it intrigued me too, but I have not been able to find the answer. Right. Because that, is that kind of connected to then you further mentioned that the that the 1965 board adopts regulations um, and like training regulations and that the Royal College of Surgeons in Australasia and the College of Surgeons in South Africa both written wrote requesting reciprocity with the Irish faculty examinations. Does that also have to do with the, the same kind of relationship you're describing? No, no, this no. is this is a different story, really. Um from the very start of the faculty in 1960, there were very close links with the English faculty. And if if you read the chapter on the faculty, you'll find that some of what were really the leading lights of um, English or British anesthesia came to Dublin for the first exams. It had passed Coors. An incredible physiologist came over for all the physiology exams. Ed Mushin, who was the first professor in Wales, would come over. They all came over here and examined in the exam. And this gave, because you'd be worried about your first exam, you'd say, is this exam worth doing? Well, we, you, when your examiners are some of the best or best known anesthesiologists, we'll call it just to keep it simple, um, uh, sitting across the desk from you, it, it gave it credibility. And they, they were always very supportive of the Irish College. So... We had what we call the exchange examiner system. So, for instance, I well, i only did it once. I went to London as the extern examiner. And every and in the exams in Dublin, there would always be one English or Scottish or Welsh extern examiner. And the extern examiner would always give a comment at the end of the exam on how he saw it was progressing on whether you thought it was fair or good or up to standard or up to their standards. And we had to do the same thing when we went to London. So there was very good uh, reciprocity and it was very anxious to keep both bodies in parallel as regards the exams. For instance, if, if you sat in, in the early days of the exams, there were two parts. There was part one, which was physiology, pharmacology and various bits. And then part two was clinical anesthesia where you would actually have, have patients and it was a bit like the final medical exam. So if I pass the primary, what we call the primary exam, the first exam in, we say, the UK, I could come and sit the fellowship in Ireland. And the reverse was true. So if you had the Irish uh, fellowship primary, you could go and sit the English fellowship. So that was the first bit of, that was the reciprocity that started off initially. Then, as you pointed out, that in 1965, the Australasian College, again, the, the anaesthetists there were part of the Royal College of Surgeons of Australasia, just like we were the faculty of the Royal College of Surgeons of Ireland. Um, they asked for reciprocity. And again, it would have been similar. You could, um, it meant we recognized each other's qualifications. People would go and look at the exams and see if the exams were very similar, if the level was very similar. Um, as I say, I, ex I examined in Ireland, I examined in England in the English College, and I actually sat the American boards. And I have to say that really the levels, all three were, were comparable, even if different, they were comparable. 
So there was reciprocity with Australia, and there was and and that meant New Zealand as well. You know, they have a combined sort of colleges now, and also the South Africans. What happened with the United States? In 1981, the American Board of Anesthesiology recognized the fellowship again. Um, they recognized the final fellowship as exempting you from the first part of the American boards. And that's actually what I did. I didn't have to sit the first part of the American boards. I was able to, after you had to do one year in a training post in the States, and you were allowed to sit the American boards. And uh, as I say, it was very similar to the exams I, I'd sat here anyway. Um so that's the recipe. That that's all gone now. By the way, the first place to pull out of reciprocity was the United States. Um, so it doesn't recognize it anymore. So, and I, I'm not really up to date beyond that. But I do know reciprocity disappeared a good while back. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is that the training in Ireland it, and in the in the UK is controlled by the colleges. So the College of Anesthesists of Ireland and the College of Anesthesists. Uh, uh, in the UK, and so you you apply to the colleges for a training program, and then you're rotated through various hospitals. So you go to a general hospital, then pediatrics, obstetrics, critical care, cardiac, neuro. Because um, in Ireland we have two neuro hospitals, we have two cardiac hospitals. So if you wanted experience, you have to move to those, um, and also you get experience in pain and regional anesthesia. Now, forty years ago, when I worked in Boston, the training was coordinated basically by Harvard and the American Board of Anesthesiologists had the overarching role and it was the same in McGill in Montreal. McGill controlled the training program. You, you rotated within McGill. So I, I presume it's just a matter of scale because Ireland is so small that we control the whole thing from one college and in the States, I guess, each state, well, each state has its own licensing, so each state would have its own. But the overall standard, I presume, is controlled by the ABA. But uh, you know, I don't don't know what's happening nowadays. I presume it's still pretty much the same. So there you go. Well, which is interesting considering you would, I mean, the, the reciprocity idea seems to make a lot of sense in, in, in terms of developing a like a larger specialty and a, a larger kind of exchange. But America is generally the first one to abandon these things, unfortunately. Um, and you also trace, so I, th I think you referenced this earlier, actually, the, the transformation in, in chapter 19, you talk about the transformation of the faculty, the faculty of to an independent college. To an yeah. independent college. So can you say just a little bit about why that's important for, particularly for medical education and training? Yeah. Well, before I go to, to go back to the reciprocity, I mean, um, it's still very important for us because, for instance, um, you know, an awful lot of Irish uh, anesthesia graduates go to um, Australia and do critical care fellowships there because Australia is, in Ireland is regarded as the sort of the mecca for critical care. But they recognize the Irish fellowship. So it makes it easy for our doctors to go and work there. My son works in Australia now and he, he's a consultant there. But they, they recognize our qualifications. We recognize theirs. So we have Australians coming here to work and we have Irish going to Australia to work. And that's very beneficial for everybody. You know, as we talked about her beforehand about the cross pollination and how you learn something from somewhere else. To talk about the transformation of the faculty of the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland to an independent college, this was a huge step actually. And it would, it was it was a huge step for the specialty because it took anesthetists in their final step away 
from their surgical colleagues. Now, we work with them, obviously, every day of the week, but um, in, a, in a more philosophical way. See, the early anaesthetists um, were often, you know, I'm talking about the end of the 19th century now, I'm not talking about the 20th century. They were often trainee, what were called trainee surgeons. So if you were a trainee surgeon, you would give the anesthetic and the surgeon, your boss would be given doing the surgery. And after a while, then you'd be doing the surgery and somebody else would be given the anesthetic. So in the eyes of the public, an anesthetist, if you were a full-time anesthetist, you were probably a failed surgeon. So it wasn't a good, it wasn't a good position to be in. And actually, I remember people saying that to me even back in the 70s. You know, oh, you're training to be a surgeon, you're doing anesthetics. So it hadn't disappeared. So it took years to get away from the idea of the surgeon, of the anesthetist being subservient to the surgeon. Now, again, if you look at the chapter on the Northern Ireland Society of Anesthetists, you see that the anesthetists were paid by the surgeon. So if the surgeon got 20 guineas, he might give the anesthetist one guinea. So it talked about the crumbs from the surgeon's table. Now, that was a very bad situation to be in because if you didn't want to, if you felt the patient wasn't fit for surgery and you kept telling the surgeon that you didn't want to put that patient to sleep, he'd probably drop you pretty quick and you might lose your livelihood. So it was a terrible situation to be in. Um, so this this continued, you know, the, uh, as a, again, if you look at the chapter in Northern Ireland Society of Anesis, you'll see that 50% of the people who were in the society were actually general practitioners. And then they went to hospital for so many mornings a week and they gave anesthetics in the morning and then they went back to their family practice in the afternoon and that's where they made the bulk of their money. So they couldn't get a living from um, giving anesthetics. So that all changed firstly in 1948 with the advent of the National Health Service. And as I said, they needed to have the higher qualification to get the the full specialist payments that were coming from them. Then if you go, if we talk about the actual faculty of anesthetists, there was a lot of irritation on a number of ways in which they weren't independent. For instance, the conferring of the fellowship. So you're now about to confer somebody with a fellowship in anesthesia of the Faculty of Anesthetists of the Royal College of Surgeons. It was the president of the Royal College of Surgeons who conferred the conferees. And there's one photograph in the book of um, of that uh, famous uh, doctor down in um, in Dallas who resuscitated John F. Kennedy, receiving an honorary fellowship. And the president of the College of Surgeons is sitting there with his mace in front of him. So he's the one who's actually conferring the fellowship. Then the next thing they were doing, which annoyed Professor Dundee from Belfast, no end, was that they were appointing the examiners. Now, obviously, the faculty would say, we want to have this guy and this guy. But it was still the College of Surgeons who said, yes, you can be an examiner. No, you can't. So... These dependencies, and then finally, they, as a faculty, their incomes were regulated by the College of Surgeons. So all of these things drove the need for them to become an independent faculty. Shortly after, so in 1998, they finally became uh, an independent college. So they broke away from the Royal College of Surgeons. Now, I have to say, the last few presidents of the Royal College of Surgeons were very supportive in this drive towards independence, you know, and things had changed, times had changed, things had moved on. And um, the first fellowship was conferred on Mary McAleese, who was president of Ireland at the time. Shortly after that, they 
the final step, I would have said, in the road to independence was they purchased their own building at 22 Marion Square, which is an area I had particular interest in. This is one of the things I got involved because I, I was writing, I was very interested in the history of the house. And this is in the, it's one of the finest Georgians, it probably is the finest Georgian Square in Dublin, and it's close to government buildings, the art gallery. So it's, it's right at the centre of things. And as I say, there's a whole chapter on that. This was a very significant step. And then, as I said earlier, it now houses the College of Medicis and its faculties, which is the Faculty of Pain Medicine and the Joint Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine. And it really does show, and we have our simulators there, simulating operating rooms and everything. So it shows how anesthesia has now expanded to be its own college and also to you know, expand it into intensive care and pain medicine and so on. So that's... That's the story there. That's why it was so important to break away. Right. And now and it, it's 25 years now, next, this year, next year. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Independent so, college. Uh, so that'll be the next task. <laughs> right. Well, it's so interesting, especially now, I think, um, maybe, uh, I don't know if it's exactly the same in Ireland, but now anesthesiologists are, is such a profitable field. I think that a lot of, you know, it's, it's such a, a difficult, I think, specialty, because it's so complex. And you need to know so much about not only the anatomy of the body, but also the the way that the chemicals and drugs are interacting with it, that it, that it's, it's interesting to hear that it was initially seen as like lesser than a surgeon. And now it's at least equal, if not, um, maybe regarded a little bit. Well, I, I suppose equally, I would say equally to surgeons, but I don't know, is that the same in Ireland? Oh, is yeah, but I I should say really that one one of the big steps that um, I think happened came out of Harvard came out was called the Harvard Minimum Monitoring Standards, and uh, this recommended that you use pulse oximetry, electrocardiograph, uh, blood pressure measuring, and esophageal um, stethoscope on all patients. And once it was printed, uh, once it was published uh, out of Harvard, uh, out of the Beth Israel, actually, where I work, um, it became universal. And it was another step in, uh, in, in making, um, making anesthesia so much safer, you know. So, yeah, monitoring is a big thing now, you know. It's uh, so complex now. It's like the flight deck of a, of a, point whatever <laughs> right yeah it's incredibly complex um so my last question is just um what do you hope that readers take away from the book i mean it's it's such a fascinating book but um are there any areas in the history of anesthesia because i, th- I think this book gives such a great kind of overview um of and the development of anesthesia in ireland but are there any areas that you would like to see developed by scholars or any any particular figures that you think deserve further merit, further research? Yeah, an interesting question. Well, what I hope the, the readers see from the book is obviously what you've just said there, how the specialty of anesthesia evolved from the early days of ether anesthetics uh, to the modern day specialty, which involves so many areas of hospital medicine. I'd like them to see how from the earliest days in the 1850s, the practitioners of this art were so concerned about the safety of their patients with all these committees looking at the complication rates from ether and the complication rates from chloroform and the death rates that were occurring and why were these deaths occurring and what was 
you know, were people using the right equipment for it? Some people were using handkerchiefs. Some people were using complex equipment to give chloroform, for instance. So there was all this debate going on all the time. And the same thing happened with the introduction of regional anesthesia and, of course, with all the drugs. So this concern for patient safety, that led to the development, of course, of the initial training programs. We saw that with Ivan McGill in the UK and the Association of Anesthetists of Great Britain and Ireland. And, uh, of course, with Ralph Waters in in, uh, Wisconsin. So they all realized that a properly trained specialist was going to be a safer specialist and was going to make make anesthesia safer for everybody all around. And, again, as I said, the the monitoring standards that came out of Harvard, they made a huge difference. They dropped... um, Anesthesia from one of the highest risk specialties as regards the insurance companies down to way down to one of the safest specialties. So with modern day monitoring and with highly trained specialist doctors, anesthesia is now one of the safest, safest specialties in a hospital for our patients. And that's why we have the title of the book. People say, what's the title? Safety as we watch, because that's really the core. We have to get our patients safely through this. We have to get them out. Obviously, we have to keep them pain-free and asleep. or Well, they don't have to be asleep, but they have to be pain-free. But we've got to get them through this trauma. I mean, surgery is trauma. So get them through it safely. Finally, for future research, I discussed this with Declan yesterday. Um, what what areas did, did we think we, we, we would like to see? And he said that, really, the one area that we don't know is... What is the societal impact of anesthesia? But none of us have the expertise for that. That would be a different type of expert to um, come and say what what the societal impact is of anesthesia. Right, which would be a very fascinating study, I think. Especially, there are, I think there are accounts of patients' experiences of anesthesia um, that, that are really interesting, particularly in terms of the, I guess, the taste of ether kind of lingers or the smell of it like lingers after after use at least from the accounts that I read um, so it's interesting to I think that's a that's definitely a, a really interesting area um, for further research so I guess that's all left to say is um, thanks Joe it was really great to talk to you I highly that's recommend my pleasure Okay, great. And then I highly recommend anyone uh, who's listening to this go out and buy themselves a copy of Safety as We Watch. Um, I think it's particularly going to be of interest to medical professionals, anesthesiologists, but also perhaps more important, well, not more importantly, but as importantly, uh, scholars and students studying the history of medicine and medical and health humanities more broadly. 